That's one of my favorite songs because um, I don't know whether you know this, but um, I was part of the kids' choir in church for the few years I went to church. She's tried to recruit me, but I'm too busy. Um, this was my favorite song because at the, at the Christmas time, I knew that I got to get up right next to the altar and, and just scream that verse at the top of my lungs, hark the herald angels sing. I absolutely loved it. brings back all those warm and fuzzy memories of Christmas. I'm sure each of you have those same memories when a song comes on at Christmas. So as we guys, as you guys are still standing, I'd love to read our theme verse in our series as we're starting today. We're going to be reading straight out of Matthew chapter 2. It says this, when they saw the star talking about the wise men, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In our series, The Gift, we're looking at each one of these gifts and determining what it means about Jesus and therefore what it says about us and what we our response should be also. So today we're going to learn about myrrh. We learned about frankincense last week. So let me give you the title of the message just so that you're aware of it. The title of the message is, He Wants Us to Do What?, And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the privilege that we have. Lord, thank you for who you are, and God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for what this time of the year represents to us, and the joy and all the things we experience around your arrival on this earth. Lord, we love you. We praise you. The church said... Amen. All right, as you grab your seat, look to your neighbor and tell him, say, you look good for church today. Thank you, sir. Now look to your second option and tell him, say, you look good too. Tell him, say, you look good too. All right, so. In this series, again, we've, we're learning about these gifts and the significance of these gifts and why they're important because a lot of us just read over those verses and we don't think that they actually represent anything or that they, they should influence us at all. We just kind of think like, hey, this is a historical part of the story. But as we learned last week and as we're going to learn again this week is that's not the only thing they represent. That in fact, they represent something special about Jesus and therefore something related to us and what we should do and how we should respond. Last week, we learned about frankincense. And when we learned about frankincense, we learned that, um, that frankincense was specific to honoring Jesus or pointing to Jesus being the high priest. And as the high priest, that meant that he would go before God and, and he would represent us to God. That we, as we learned last week, you can, uh, that we can approach the throne of glory or the throne of mercy is what the author says. Some of us grew up with the church, you know, the church where maybe the version of God you were given was that throne is actually the throne of wrath, right? But the author of Hebrews says that that's the throne of mercy, that we can actually, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because he's the the high priest, that we can approach the throne of mercy with confidence. And then I messed with your nativity scene last week. Those of you that remember, some of you guys are still mad at me, and I'm, I'm not sorry, but I'm kind of sorry. I messed with your nativity scene because you put the nativity scene out, and how many wise men are there? Three. Yep. And the baby's normally how big? It's like a little baby, right? Little, tiny, tiny 
infant, right? But as we learned last week, and I messed with all of you guys who had your infant, you know, your nativity scene, you probably went home and tried to find a historically correct nativity scene, and there wasn't one, because they don't sell those, because they're not cool. But we found out that, that the wise men weren't at the nativity scene. The magi, they, they weren't there. At the, they didn't arrive that way. And again, like I said, if you think that's bad, next week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess with your nativity scene real bad, okay? But I'm just... Not, not this week. You're safe this week, okay? You're safe this week. So, but the thing is, is that Jesus came in a manger, right? And then the wise men, the magi, didn't come after that. They didn't come till he was probably a toddler or maybe even four, five, six, somewhere in, in that range. Because the wise men came from an area known today or close to today, probably from the Persian area, an area near Persia, Azerbaijan, that area. And they were coming from that area because in their particular belief or what they were known for is they would keep an eye and they cared about the astrology, the stars and the moon to see God in that part of creation. So that's why it makes sense if you think about it, how they were the only ones that noticed the big star. Nobody else noticed the big star. Everybody, I mean, even they went to King Herod and then King Herod was like, yeah, there's a, there's a prophecy. I know about that. But I mean, if, if the star was really that large, the way some of us think about it, then they would, have, they would have seen it. But they were paying attention to the skies. So they noticed it, and they saw it, and they'd been looking for a long time. It had been a big part of their viewpoints and their beliefs that a sign would come in the stars that the Messiah or the new king had arrived. And that's the language they use when they show up to Herod. And if you notice, Herod gets all squirrely about it, too. We're going to cover that next week. So again... We're talking about myrrh today. And myrrh is a tree sap very similar to uh, what we saw last week with frankincense. In fact, if you put them right next to each other, you probably couldn't tell the difference between the two uh, unless you know what you're looking for. It's another essential oil. The only difference is frankincense don't smell that good. At least I don't think so. Um, but myrrh actually smells pretty good. What myrrh reminds me of is my grandmother used to have this specific perfume. Um, and it's, I just call it the church lady perfume. And you know what I'm talking about? Where you like leave in church and they hug you and you smell like that for the rest of the day? Like that's, that's, that's what grandma had. And it's honestly what this smells like and it's what myrrh smells like. But it's a very pleasant smell. It's not a bad smell. It's a very pleasant smell. And uh, they would actually use it as part of the embalming material. And they would use it as part of the perfumes and spices that they would anoint dead bodies with after the Jewish folks, after they would die, uh, because it presented a... a, uh, a a good smell instead of what you know happens with dead bodies afterwards is they don't smell so good. So it was part of the whole process. Uh, it's still used in anointing oil today. Like it's, it was part of anointing oil then, it's still used in anointing oil today. In fact, if you get little travel size, nobody does this except me because I'm a pastor and it's like my job. But I have, I have a little travel size of anointing oil. <laughs> You're like, I didn't know they did that. Yeah, they do. They're like little caps and you pull it off, and that's actually frankincense mixed with myrrh, and it creates a very pleasant smell. And it's used in anointing oil today. It was used in anointing oil back in those days, too. And what it represented when it was given to Jesus was it represented him as the suffering servant. It was pointing to his death and his suffering because it was pointing to you only typically used that and it was most known for using it as an embalming material or, again, for anointing the dead. So when they bring it to Jesus, it's pointing to the fact that he's going to die for all of our sins and that he would suffer. And myrrh actually intersects with his life a few different times. 
a few different times. It's given to Jesus, obviously, by the wise men, the Magi. That's what we're reading about and learning today. Uh, they tried to give it to him mixed with wine on the cross because it creates kind of like a sedative or, or like almost a hallucinogenic or a pain-relieving effect. Um, but he said, no, he didn't want any of that. That was common in those days. They would mix it. Um, and the ladies tried to give it to Jesus to kind of save him the pain and suffering that would be experienced on the cross. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. Just go ahead and let me have, you know, go through the full gambit of pain. And then it was going to be used to anoint his body when the ladies went to the tomb with all the appropriate spices and perfumes, except he wasn't there. Like, oh, did I ruin the story? Did you guys not know that? I'm sorry. I thought that I was sorry. Um, but, but it was actually, he, his body wasn't there. So myrrh kind of intersects with the life of Jesus a few different times. And <clears throat> here's another thing. A lot of times the focus of, of Christmas is baby Jesus, right? I mean, the arrival of the king, the arrival of Jesus. I can't tell you how many manger scenes I've seen, how many things on Facebook and Instagram you see all pointing to the arrival and the precious moment and, and all that. And, and that's true. That is part of what Christmas is about. But Christmas is honestly more about the death and resurrection of Jesus than it is about the birth of Jesus. Christmas is about celebrating his birth, but Christmas doesn't mean anything without the death and resurrection. It's insignificant. If all Jesus did was be born, that happens all the time. Babies are born all the time. The fact that he was born was not that crazy, except for the whole virgin birth thing. But aside from that, <laughs> aside from that, just sweep that to the back. Aside from that, Aside from that, he, he, it's not that special, right? I mean, he's just another child that's born. And in fact, it may not even have eternal implications if he wasn't killed and then resurrected. That Christmas is so much more than baby Jesus in a manger. It's so much more than just baby Jesus. It's, it's so much more than silent night. It's so much more than a big guy in a red suit. It's, it's so much more than the, than the wise men and the nativity scene and the gifts around the, the, the tree and, and all the things that we kind of associate with Christmas. And they're all amazing, and I love them. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Christmas junkie. Look at this place. I told Chrissy, I said, I want it to look like Christmas. It looks like Christmas, right? I, I, I'm there. I'm with you. But if that's all Christmas is, then we've missed something. In fact, when the shepherds, the angels arrive to the shepherds, they look at the shepherds and they say, we bring you good news of great joy for all people. Not just for the Jews, not just for those that feel like they're appropriate, not just those who feel like they're worthy, not just for the 12 tribes of Israel. No, we bring you good news of great joy for all people, everybody. All-inclusive. Anybody who wants Jesus gets Jesus. Come on, somebody say amen. That is a big deal. Totally different from all the other religions in the world. And here's the other thing. This makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. Is that means that the Savior suffered on your behalf. That means he had to suffer. The king had to die on my behalf. And Christmas, again, is about so much more than that. It's about the death and the resurrection 
of Jesus. And in order to understand that and pay attention to it, we have to see Jesus as the suffering servant. And the best place to see that is in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, for those of you that have not been around church very long, Isaiah 53 is uh, kind of right at the tail end of Isaiah, coming up on the end of Isaiah. And it's, it's the suffering servant passage. It's attributed to Jesus. In fact, in some synagogues, they won't read it. Some do, but some of them, they won't read it or they shy away from it because it shares such similarity to who Jesus was. Now, this was about 700 years before the resurrection or before the arrival of Jesus. Now, that is pretty much like me predicting the Super Bowl winner 700 years from now and telling you exactly what the score is going to be. That's insanity. But here Isaiah is writing it down because of a vision he received from the Lord about this suffering servant. The other thing you've got to pay attention to is in Isaiah, it's really broken into two separate sections. You've got the first part, which is chapters 1 through 40, and that's Isaiah looking and God looking at Israel going, bad, stop it, do better, quit making me mad. That's kind of what the first section is, is like, you guys really messed it up. And they're all like, yeah, you're right. We did kind of mess it up. But then... After that, verse, uh, chapters 40 through 66 is talking about the new hope. Not like, not like the Star Wars episode, the new hope, but like new hope for the entire world, like for everybody. And then in narrative, if you pay attention in Isaiah, it's all Israel focused until you get to around chapter 40, 41. And then it, it kind of broadens and it changes and the tone changes. And it seems as though he's talking about the entire world which was not in the cards for the Jews. They were like, no, 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 we're God's chosen people. And it's almost like God was like, yes, you are the chosen people in order to bring about the king and the Messiah. Once that happens, you ain't chosen people anymore. You all are chosen. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. That, that, that's what he's kind of getting at. So chapter 53 comes kind of right in the middle of that idea of the new hope. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 53 because you'd fall asleep, but I encourage you this Christmas season, this week in particular, if you can, read the entirety of chapter 53. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should read the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 just so you get a better understanding of what your Savior went through for you. And if you don't believe in Jesus and you're not sure, you're on the outskirts, you're like, maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure, maybe, you know, maybe Jesus, maybe not Jesus, read it with the idea of who else could this be? Because it's not going to make sense of who else it could be besides Jesus. So, we're going to start in verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hid their faces when he was despised, we held him in low esteem. When Jesus was taken to the cross, everybody felt or thought that he was rejected. They were like, oh, everybody abandoned him. Nobody thought he was the Messiah at that point. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet he, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, brought me peace, brought you peace, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
Come on, somebody. If that doesn't get you excited about Christmas, I don't know what is. And see, Christmas, if we focus on just the baby Jesus, we miss the suffering servant Jesus. And the suffering servant Jesus is how we got to where we are today, that we can approach the throne of glory. And again, we learned last week that there's a gap, there was a gap between us and God. Do you guys remember that? I explained what sin was. I talked about sin. And so if you missed last week, you got to go back and watch it. We have a great tech team that records the video. It records the audio and goes through all that so you can watch it. You should go back and watch it or listen to it so that you understand the importance of this gap. But there was a gap between us and God. And with that gap, somebody had to stand in and fill the gap. Somebody had to provide a bridge between us and the Lord. And Jesus raised his hand and says, I will fill that gap. Here's what I love about that. Here's what I love about when you read through the entirety of the Gospels. Jesus never ascribes blame. Every time he comes in and reacts to somebody's sin, the only time is when he deals with the over-religious, judgmental people. <clears throat> Come on, somebody. He, he never ascribes sin. Have you noticed that? When you read through the Gospels, pay attention next time. He says things like, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't show up to the scene and say, hold on, before I provide any salvation, whose fault was this? I like to attribute it to like a first responder. Those of you who are in the first responding world, and, and I've been around them, and, and I've experienced it in the military too, when it comes to a first responder, they show up on the scene and they just get to work, don't they? They just get to work. They don't show up and say, okay, hold on, time out. I know you're bleeding, but stop. Whose fault was this? You don't get in a major car accident on 95 and you're stuck inside your car and you need the jaws of life to get you out. They don't show up and say, okay, hold on, before we get there, no, stop, Rick, stop right there. Okay, hey, whose fault was this? Who, who was going too fast? Who was going here? No, first, they get to you. They save you, and then they worry about whose fault it was. Jesus did the same thing in the Gospels. He never starts with blame. He never ascribes, and they even tried to get him to do it. One of the times the religious leaders come up and says, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man's mother or this man's father? And Jesus says, neither. And they're like, what? And he goes, neither, leave your life of sin. And they're like walking away, that's so confusing. Because he's not interested in ascribing sin or just uh, assigning sin and assigning blame. Because that doesn't change, okay? This is important. That doesn't change the sacrifice that he made. And that should make you happy this morning. That it can be all your fault. In fact, it was all your fault, wasn't it? Come on, we've all been there. When you walk away from something that you just totally messed up real bad, a relationship that you totally sabotaged, a situation that you totally destroyed, something that you knew you walked away and you went, man, I am so happy Jesus wasn't standing next to me right there. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've had those moments where you've walked away and you just go, ooh, that just felt gross, right? You've had that. And Jesus doesn't show up and ascribe blame and point fingers and go, well, that's your fault and that's your fault and you did this and you did that. And some of us grew up with that version of Jesus. Some of us, me included, grew up with that version of Jesus to where I'm always used to him showing up saying, how dare you? Right? 
How dare you do that? After my sacrifice. I don't think that's his tone at all. That's certainly not his tone in the Gospels. That's not even his tone with the Apostle Paul, who was trying to kill Christians. And so if we pay attention to his tone throughout the entire all the Gospels, his tone is, simple, is simply this. Stop it. That's it. Stop. Walk away from it. Leave it. It's going to hurt you. That's his tone throughout the, entire, in the entirety of it. Now, Jesus taking on the position of the suffering servant is great, and we need that, and we absolutely love that. Each one of us is a beneficiary of his mercy and of his grace. But what does that mean for us? Sure, it means that we're saved. Sure, it means that we're in a great position with God. That's, that's amazing. We all need that. But what does that mean for us practically? What does that mean? Because here, you guys know, I say this all the time, doing makes the difference. It doesn't mean anything about what you know, okay, about what you believe. It matters what you do when you leave this room. It matters how you behave when you leave here. So knowing that Jesus was a suffering servant, what do we do? What does that mean for us. And Jesus actually says it and he explains it to his followers, his immediate disciples. He hints at it, in fact, when he's talking to his disciples. He's got them all gathered around. This is in Luke chapter 9. He's got them all gathered around and as he's got them gathered around, he's like, okay guys, you need to pay attention. I'm going to die and I'm going to go and I've got to die and be raised up and it's a big long thing. And they're all like, where did that come from? We were eating by the lake, and now you're talking about your death and resurrection. This doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Now remember, we read that and go, oh yeah, foreshadowing, I love it. They didn't know, understand that at all. They didn't get that at all. So they, they hear that and they're like, okay, whatever. And then he says to them this. This is what he says to them when he's talking about what they should do then because of his suffering. Listen to this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, to which anybody in the room that would like to be a disciple of Jesus, raise your hand. Okay, he's talking to you. Okay, this is not just to them, this is to you. Okay, this is, this is to all of us that say we want to follow Jesus. And for those of you that don't follow Jesus and you're watching it, you'd see us kind of get uncomfortable for a second. In fact, you can even point fingers at us if you want. So Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must live their best lives right now. Mm, I don't think so. They must spend their money however and on whatever they want because they are worth it. You do you, boo-boo. <laughs> right? That's, what, that's, that's not what your version says. They must have the nicest house to host all the Christmas parties. Right? Is that what your version? My version doesn't say that either. You know what? If they want to be the disciple of Jesus, they must pray daily and never miss a day. In fact, when they pray, they must pray in the King James Version of the Bible. It's got to be those, those, these, and those, or I'm not paying any attention. He didn't, he didn't say that either. He didn't say that in order to be his disciple, you have to show everyone how holy you are. He didn't say that. He said to them, looking at all of his disciples, I think looking at them right in the eye because this was a key fundamental part of his kingdom. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, not just a believer in me, it's easy to believe in me. But if you want to take the next step and you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, he says, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's not exciting at Christmas time. 
Brandon, I'm going to open all the gifts next week. <laughs> Me too, friend. But Jesus says that if we are to, to become or think through or, or what the implications of him being the suffering servant is, Jesus says that means there's times in your life, if you're going to follow him, there's times in your life when you need to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. That means it is a choice. You can be a believer and not a follower. I, can I be honest? Can I be real? Let me just be real honest with you guys right now. I think the church is full of believers, and that's great, but I want more followers. If more people followed Jesus in the church across the world, the world would look different. But too many people are stuck on what they believe. Or they sit back and go, hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. Dude, that's the bottom rung. <laughs> like, that is so low on the totem pole. Like, I mean, it is like you could trip over it almost. I mean, that is that, if, if that's all we're going for, then just tell me, say, I don't like to win. Right? Like, I mean, you're just, you're just barely getting over. You're barely getting in. Let me tell you this. The enemy of your soul would love nothing more than for you to just barely make it in. He would love nothing more than for you to just barely make it in. If you accept Jesus and believe in Jesus, he can't touch your soul. But man, as long as he can bother your impact and make sure you don't make a difference in the world, hey, he's good. He's reached and he's achieved what he wanted to achieve. Jesus says, if you want to Follow me. Be my disciple. That means that you have to deny yourself, and it's an active choice. And that means there's times when you have to say no to you. And nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. We all like the version of God where we say yes to God, or God says yes to us. We say yes to God, God says yes to us. It's a very one-for-one. One. That's what we want, but that's not the case. He didn't say that's how it was going to happen. And then we get to, okay, okay, Brandon, I'm there. Um, what does that mean to deny myself? And Jesus gives us the most practical application. He gives us the most practical application on the night that he would be betrayed and on the night that he would be handed over to the guards. He gave us the most, the clearest example of things on how we're supposed to behave. If he's the suffering servant, and following him means that we are to deny ourselves. He says, this is how you do it. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. We're in John chapter 13 and verse 3. And that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So he knew all of this already. And because he knew all of this, maybe your English translation says so, but the connector there can be because he knew all of this. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus, the rabbi, the leader of his group of 12, he stands up from the position of power at the end of the table. And he takes his outer robe. The outer robe was the rabbinical robe, the one of authority, the one of power. He takes that off and wraps it around his waist. And as he wraps it around his waist, he does something that is so countercultural that none of the religious leaders would have done. None other, no other rabbi would have done. He places himself in the position 
a servant. So he gets up, takes off the thing that demonstrates him as the, the owner or the, the leader and the powerful one in the room. And he, wraps the towel, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. Placing himself again physically in the position of servant. Physically placing himself underneath those that he was called to lead. Underneath those around him. And there are so many leadership applications to this. But particularly as we look and how we live our lives and what we should do. And I don't want you to lose focus of the moment. This is the Passover. He's going to die the next day. He's going to be betrayed in a few hours. He's going to be handed over to the Roman guards. He's going to be hung on a cross the next day. First, he's going to be interrogated and beaten in a crown of thorns, thrown into his head. And then he takes a second and he gathers his disciples and says, hold on, guys, this is really important. You've got to pay attention to this. This is foundational to my kingdom. You have to take the position of servant. And so the best way to do it is to do so himself. And then Peter gets all confused because Peter's like, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to do that. And I feel Peter because I would have done the same thing. I would have been like, oh, Jesus is not washing my feet. Get out of the way, Lord. I'm going to wrap that towel around. And he says, no, 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 if I don't wash you, you can't be clean. Peter's all confused. He doesn't understand what he means. And he says, sit down, Peter. And Peter goes, I, sir, and sits down, right? And then Jesus finishes washing all of their feet, <clears throat> Judas included. Um, he finishes washing all of their feet. And then he sits down back at the head of the table, puts back on the rabbinical robe, takes the towel off. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You're right when you guys call me teacher and when you call me Lord and when you call me rabbi. You're right, I am all of those things. And he, he's, he's the master teacher. He gets them leaning in. Okay, what are you saying here? And he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, since you guys call me Lord and teacher, he says, have washed your feet. You should wash one another's feet. He says, I have set an example. Now pause here real quick. What are, what are examples for? They're to show you the right way to do things. Okay, so let me give you an example. I trained jujitsu at a dojo here with my friends, and um, what our sensei does not do is he does not walk in and say, okay, today we're going to work on jujigatami. Have at it and walk away. It's not going to work. We wouldn't know what to do. So what does he do? He grabs some sorry sucker like me and armbars me about four times in front of everybody, and then everybody sees it. They see the example, and then they go do it. If you've been a coach of anything, what do you do? You show them first. You set the example of it. In fact, when your kids, I mean, they, if your kids are respectful and stuff, it's, it's because they've seen the example of it. Because you have to provide the example. And Jesus, leaning into that truth, leaning into that teaching, knowing that we are children of God and we need some guidance, we need an example, he says, I, your Lord, your teacher, have set the example. 
I have got down on the mats and I have shown you how to do it. I have shown you how to block. I have shown you how to tackle. I have shown you. Now it's your turn. It's not going to be easy. He never promised it would be easy. He said, now it's your turn. He says, I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no master is greater than his, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, that you know these things, you will be, somebody shout that next word. What's the next word? Well, that didn't work the way I wanted. (laughs) Verse 16, next one. Blessed, there we go. Okay. You will be blessed if you do them. Notice he doesn't say if you believe them. That's too easy. That's the bottom bar. That's just just right down there. You will be blessed only if you do them, not simply believe. And I think for too long, the church has been really good at believing, not very good at doing, not very good at at taking the commands of Jesus that, that he's demonstrated and given us examples of and applying it to the world. And now he never promised that would be easy. He never promised that it would be super, super simple. But he calls us that to serve others the way he served us and took on the mantle of suffering servant and denied himself, not for his benefit, for your benefit, for your benefit, for your benefit, for my benefit. He says, the same way that I did that, I want you to do that. I want you to do that for people. I want you, this is the way I explain it, I want you to place them first, not you first. See, we live in a you first society, don't we? It's an all about me first. What I want, what I need, my desires before anybody else's. And then somewhere along the way, maybe I'll take care of somebody, maybe somewhere. Right? And Jesus says, I want you to shift your viewpoint, shift your mentality to a you first attitude, because the chief role in the kingdom of God is servant. Because Jesus was a servant. He says he came to serve, not to be served. And as the suffering servant, we are reminded of that. Now, as the uh, that idea of you first, that's going to be so difficult. It's going to be so difficult, and it's going to take time for you to implement. It's going to take time for you to think about it. I ask this question often. What does love require of me in this moment? In this moment, what does it mean to love this person? In this moment... What does it mean to place them first? Within reason, you got to use your judgment. You got to make sure that it's wise for you and wise for them. But so often we miss opportunities because we live in a me first spot. 
when really we need to be living in a you first. I'm telling you this right now. Change the way you view it in your marriage. It will change your marriage. If you just simply shift from a me first attitude in your marriage to a you first honey attitude, your marriage will change. Your marriage will be so much better. As it relates to your kids, if you start leading with a you-first attitude, not give them everything they want. Don't make them spoiled brats, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but when you communicate and when you talk to them and you behave and you think through, hey, let me go with not what's easy for mom and dad right now or what's easy for me to say or easy for me to, to do. Let me actually think what's best for them and then do that. And that is so challenging. And then when you apply it to work, oh my goodness, people are going to, one, think you're crazy because you haven't been doing it forever. And two, they might actually like you at work. It's crazy. Because they know that you have their best interests at heart. And again, this is so difficult. This is so incredibly challenging. So incredibly challenging. But if Jesus was the suffering servant, and that's what myrrh represents, is him as the suffering servant, then we should take up the position of servant, that we're expected to take up the position of servant. That if we want to follow him, not believe in him, follow him, that we have to take up that position of servant. So here's an easy question that I want to leave you with that you can take and you can apply right on an index card and just keep it around for this week. Just do it this week and see what it does for you. And it's this question, how can I add value here? Not, not how do I, you know, get what I want here. How can I add value in this relationship? Right now, given this argument that my wife and I are having or my husband and I are having, how can I do something of value because that's going to cause you to go, you first. Your needs first. Your desires first. And again, that is so difficult. That is so incredibly difficult. Because that means, just like Jesus said, that we would have to deny ourselves and take up our cross. But denying yourself and taking up your cross and leading and going through life with a you-first attitude is one of the best things you will ever do because you will begin to add value to everybody around you instead of making it all about you, which is where culture normally sits. So the starting question is, how can I add value here? In my marriage, how can I add value? my relationship with my kids, how can I add value? In my relationships at work, how can I add value? Lord, how can I add value in this place that you have me right now because you are the suffering servant and I know I should serve. So how can I do that? Where can I add value? And what can I do? And that is so challenging. But if you can maneuver it and you can get there, you'll be better for it. Your workplace will be better for it. Your marriage will be better for it. Your relationship with your kids will be better for it. It's the way that you're designed to live. 
You're designed to live. You're expected to live with a you-first attitude. So, as we close today, some of you in the room, you may be hearing this, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, Brandon, that's great. But I haven't even taken that first step to accept Jesus as my Savior. I haven't even taken that first step to accept him as the Lord. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to pray that prayer. And if you are a follower, I want to pray specifically with you as we become a group of people that do not just believe. So with that, let me pray with you today. Lord, we come before you today. We're grateful and thankful for you, Jesus, that you were the suffering servant, that you suffered on our behalf. And God, we can't even begin to understand some of the pain and the suffering that you went through for us. So Lord, we're grateful for that. Lord, I want to pray with anybody in the room today that hasn't accepted that gift yet. They haven't accepted it, or maybe they never understood it, Lord. Or maybe they're ready to come back. They've walked away, and they're ready to come back. So, Father, I want to pray with them. We'll pray with them now, Lord, that we we admit that we need you. That we need your grace, and we need your mercy. God, we, we believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he died on the cross and raised from the grave. And God, commit our lives to follow him in this place forward. Lord, I want to pray for all those who, who are already believers and followers. God, these are always challenging moments when when Christ sits at that table and takes off that robe and says, you're to do that the same way I've done it for, for you. God, that's challenging, that's countercultural. that's upside down, that's, that's so difficult. But we know that that's the way you want us to live. That we would deny ourselves, take it as an opportunity to serve some other people. So Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, we need your help to do that. It's so, so difficult. So help us in this season become your hands and feet. Help us in this season become followers who serve and think and lead with a you first attitude. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And the church said, amen.